As the Buddha once said, there truly is no greater happiness than the happiness of a well-trained mind, the happiness of a well-trained heart. Speaking with some of you this morning and over the last few interview days, I've been talking about one of the shifts that does happen through practice. Whereas when our heart, our mind is not so well trained and we happen to experience a moment of calmness or peace or serenity, it always feels or can feel like some amazing, wonderful accident. And it can feel even more normal to have a mind that spins and gets lost in thought and obsessions and preoccupations. And one of the changes, it's really a reversal, a, a complete shift that happens in that in a well-trained mind, a mind that knows how to let go, a mind that knows how to be present, it actually does seem any moment of agitation or a moment of restlessness or a moment of aversion, that is actually what feels unusual. It feels kind of quite out of the norm. It almost sets up a, a little wake-up call inwardly saying, what is this? What is this? And I think most of us understand in this path that you know, one of the great foundations that we cultivate over and over again is our capacity for calmness, our capacity for serenity, our capacity for simplicity within the mind. But this is not a destination. You know, I've seen that happen too often on retreats where people struggle. It feels like such a struggle to begin to calm down and then finally, people do begin to calm down. They can feel, well, that job done, you know, work's over, you know, I can retire now, you know, I don't need to sit anymore. Um, but calmness is not a destination. In a way, calmness, serenity, steadiness of heart, it is really almost uh, another starting point. It's another beginning. And it's the way in which we turn that calmness of mind towards really deepening in understanding, towards really deepening in insight. And I think one of the places that is really important in terms of developing understanding is to really understand the landscape of agitation, to understand the landscape of suffering, to understand the landscape of unease. What, what is it? How does it come into being? How can our worlds be so different that in one moment we can have a world inwardly that can feel so peaceful, connected, intimate, and in another moment we can have a world that just feels so restless and filled with turmoil and struggle? And we really see that the, the landscape of our mind in the landscape of our world as we understand it, that they are arising and passing together. You know, the agitated mind can only actually really see it, an agitated world. 
you know, the mind that is really at peace, that is still, will actually find that stillness everywhere. Will actually find that peace everywhere. And I think one of the wonderful teachings in this tradition is that there are no accidents. There are no accidents. And sometimes these changing worlds that look so mysterious that we often end up with that question of how did I get here? <laughs> or how did I end up here? That you're not so mysterious. That the, acts, the things that seem accidents or mysteries are actually like all things in this world. They arise from conditions. They are born of conditions. And everything about this teaching and this practice really asks us to cultivate the conditions inwardly and outwardly, that really incline the mind, incline the heart towards equanimity, towards understanding, towards compassion, loving kindness, and to learn to let go of the conditions that incline the mind towards struggle and fear and restlessness. It is where it is not, this practice, this path is it is not just about having a certain kind of experience on the cushion. It is really a path of cultivation, a path of training the heart, training the mind in that which is healing, that which is liberating, that which is calming. So it is, <clears throat> I think there is a great value in looking at this changing world of our heart and mind. What is the difference between a heart of peace, of calmness, of stillness, and the mind of agitation or restlessness, of struggle? We, we see that our mind lives in a state, our heart lives in a state of potentiality. Our heart, our mind is constantly being shaped by a whole range of different factors. Our intentions, our thoughts, our mental states, our emotions, our interest or lack of interest. All of this moment to moment is shaping the mind, the heart in a particular way. The world arises on contact. With the ending of contact, the world of that moment falls away. It's this wonderful line the Buddha talks, he says actually just that, that the world arises on contact. With the cessation of contact, there is the cessation of the world. He went on to say that the wise seek to understand contact and the foolish seek to pursue it. Now contact in this sense is the meeting of the sense door and the sensory information and the knowing of that. The eye, the eye, the sight, the seeing. It's this contact. There's that meeting happening. This is a place where our world begins to arise. Now what makes it my world, what makes it my world, is also what in this tradition is, is referred to as papancha. And I think papancha is a word very worth remembering. 
it's very worth kind of taking into our practice and really remembering this word papancha. Papancha is actually the creation of our world. Papancha is a Pali word that refers to the proliferation of thinking and view that makes this world of the moment my world. And we all know that you know our worlds can be very, very different in any one moment, can't it? You know, the rain comes and, you know, for one person it's a totally ruined day. You know, for another person, oh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a sound of nature happening. I mean, our worlds can be so different with the same contact. Papancha. Papancha is the way our thoughts proliferate, our views proliferate, and we create our world of the moment. There are different forms of papancha, this kind of proliferation, this uh, productivity of thinking and view. One form of papancha is the way our world is shaped on the basis of liking and disliking. It's called tanha papancha, the proliferation of thinking based on craving and dosa papancha, the proliferation of thinking that is based on aversion. We experience this a lot, I think, in life and on retreat. You know, one of the, the classic examples that is often used is in terms of like the, the Vipassana romance and the Vipassana vendetta, you know, where one person, there's contact through the eyes with one person on a retreat, you know, and how the mind can suddenly spin this whole web of thinking what an amazing person they are, you know, and so meaningful to me, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm, we have some sort of cosmic connection, you know, and, and, and karmic history, you know, and this whole mind that spins and spins and spins on the basis of craving. And that can be about anything. It can be about a person. It can be about lunch. It can be about the weather. And, of course, the other side is also true, the dosa, papancha, where we create a world on the basis of aversion. <clears throat> I don't like this. You know, this is terrible. This is destroying my own retreat. You know, the fact that this person yawns in the hall, you know, has kind of completely sabotaged my enlightenment. <laughs> this entire kind of productivity of the mind. But it also goes inwardly as well as outwardly. You know, the tanha papancha inwardly. Oh, I'm doing so great, you know. I see my future as a hermit coming up, you know. I'm doing so terrible, you know. I'm such a useless yogi. I'm such a useless meditator. It is really the tanha and the dosa papancha. Now, there is a view that is happening in that world formation. It's obviously a view of self, but there's more. It, it's a kind of enchantment. It is one of kind of these very embedded views that we're encouraged to question in this practice. Because whenever there is craving and aversion, there is a quality of enchantment. And I use that word quite specifically. But it's the belief for craving and aversion to be activated and to sustain, there must be the belief that this thing, this event, this experience, this person intrinsically holds the power to make me happy or make me unhappy. 
So the enchantment is the projection of that power, that authority, into an object, into a sound, into a meditation experience, into a person. You have the power to make me happy or unhappy. This kind of enchantment is the fuel for craving and aversion. And it's certainly something we are asked to question in this practice and in this teaching. Does anything in this world actually have that authority and that power to dictate our happiness and our unhappiness? I mean, as long as we're hostage to the enchantment, then we have really actually given permission to everything in the world, the pleasant and the unpleasant, to be the gatekeeper of our heart. And I think really this practice is reclaiming that authority, is not giving anything the authority, the power to be the gatekeeper of our freedom, the gatekeeper of our happiness, the gatekeeper of our hearts. So I think when we start to see that movement of craving and aversion, it's, it's really so important to, to look underneath it and to look at where we have invested that authority into things, people, objects, to deliver happiness or unhappiness to us. And is it true? You know, there's, there's part of the path of liberation that the Buddha talked about, which is the conscious cultivation of disenchantment. I think to many people that feels like a very negative word, but it, it's not meant in a negative way. It, it's not surrendering our capacity to be delighted or attached, appreciative. But disenchantment is, this, is that withdrawal of projected promise. It's withdrawing from the objects, the things, the events in the world, that power to deliver happiness or unhappiness. It's a projection. So disenchantment is simply that withdrawal of projected promise. And that doesn't make the world dull or flat or uninteresting or boring or anything else. In fact, it is actually really liberating. And disenchantment is actually, there's a quality, a very deep quality, I think, of equanimity within it that is really just not so captured by the, the what are called the worldly winds, you know, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the lovely, not so lovely, just that coolness of equanimity that can receive can be really intimate, can be really connected, but not imprisoned by events, not imprisoned by any arising event. So in the presence of craving aversion, because we can see with craving aversion the world that is made inwardly is a world actually where there's a lot of suffering, where there doesn't feel to be so much, there feels to be very little freedom or happiness. And craving and aversion are, you know, two of the big ones. And to know that we can step out, that we can step into the cool, that we can know craving and aversion as craving and aversion, that we can actually reclaim the kind of source of our happiness and freedom within, within our own hearts, within our own minds. 
We also see that craving and aversion gives rise to a lot of papancha, doesn't it? It gives rise to a lot of proliferation. I mean, if you look at what you think about a lot in the day, we don't think a lot about the neutral, do we? <laughs> the places where we really think a lot is where there is craving and aversion. How am I going to get more of this? You know, or how am I going to arrange my world so you know I, I, I get a longer-lasting dose of the pleasant? You know, or you know, what do I need to do? Strategize in order to to make this happen again? Or you know, the fantasies, the imaginings that are proliferate out of craving, and of course, aversion. There's a lot of papancha. I mean, a lot of proliferation of thinking. I think sometimes we think more about the people we hate than the people we love. You know, we think about all the things they've done and uh, da, da, you know how they are and there's no excuses and how we're going to make them different. And if you think about when there's aversion for ourselves, you know, that the amount of proliferation, papancha, that happens is quite extraordinary sometimes. So learning to calm the craving and the aversion is actually learning to calm the papancha. And it's not a question of there being a right order. You know, sometimes we need to calm the thinking, sometimes we need to question the view, question the belief. What is the view from which craving aversion arises? What is the culture of lack or the culture of enchantment? So, you know, it's not a question of there's this way or that way, but just, I think, simply to know whenever there is a storm of thinking, a waterfall of thinking, that what is happening in that moment is papancha. And how to cool it, how to begin to step out of it. Now the second brand, we might say, the second brand of papancha is called ditti papancha or the papancha of view. Ditti papancha is all the thinking we do about how the world is and how the world should be, about how we are and how we should be. You know, when we go through life with our kind of very set views, descriptions of the world, you know, this is wonderful, this is terrible, you know, meditators are so grim, you know, meditation retreats are so serious, you know, meditation retreats, everybody should do them. You know, these are kind of the views that we think a lot about. And you think when we have a view of the world or a view of ourself, we're obviously doing a lot of thinking in order to reinforce that, in order to justify it, explain it. You know, if I have a view that, you know, Buddhism is suddenly a kind of meeting place for chronic depressives, you know, it's like I'm going to have a lot of thinking to kind of support that view. I'm going to be looking to see how many grim faces I can find, you know, and, you know, look at all these terrible you know, quotes on the wall, you know. It's like we're constantly really reinforcing our view. Sometimes we don't even know we have views until they're challenged or they have a collision with another view. You know, then then we see the amount of papancha that comes. 
you remember years, you know, some years ago when my son was in the kind of grunting adolescent phase of his life, and um, you know, one day one of his friends got stuck with me, unfortunately, and and he was trying to be very polite and courteous, and he he asked me what I did, and I told him. And uh, he looked at me like I was something from another planet. And he said, well, why would anyone do that in a practice? And, and uh, so I, I gave him a small Dharma talk, this friend of my son, you know, about how everybody wanted to be happy and everybody wanted to be peaceful. He looked at me and says, I don't. <laughs> and I felt so offended. You know, I could feel this surge of offense. And, I thought, and then I immediately just looked at that and I thought, why do I have this surge of offense? And I thought, it's a view. It's just a view. And it wasn't even, I mean, it wasn't that I didn't actually, I do actually feel that most people want to be happy, but clearly not everybody does. <laughs> so is there room in the world for those who don't in my world? You know, or do I have a view that says everybody has to want to be happy? You know, because then you could see the amount of thinking that could happen. Oh, this poor young man, he's just lost his way, you know. And he didn't understand what's really important, you know. And, you know, maybe I spend a little bit... And you could just see the possibility of papancha in those moments. And actually, that is when we do a lot of papancha. When our view meets another view. And then we're trying to explain and to justify and to, you know, affirm the rightness of my view. And I think with, you know, in the world of views that are often just really revealed by challenges with alternative views, if we really get a sense of how subtle clinging can be, how it can even cling to the wholesome and make a view out of the wholesome, can even cling to that which is really wise and make a view out of that which is wise. And this encouragement in, in understanding views and the papancha around them is this constant encouragement actually to cling to nothing. You know, to absolutely cling to nothing. Neither the wholesome nor the unwholesome. And that doesn't mean having no direction in our path or in our life, but to really understand the way our views kind of freeze the world in a sort of concrete. It's a way of trying to make things stand still. Because we can say, I know. We can say, I know. And maybe the whole art of the practice is that nothing has to stand still. Nothing has to stand still. That maybe it's possible much more to to just really rest in a place of not knowing, of being surprised. And I, I often really do feel that as human beings that our capacity to deepen, our capacity to learn, our capacity to grow is so linked to our willingness to be surprised. To not have the world always set in our knowing. Now, the third dimension of papancha, brand of papancha, I might say, is mana papancha. 
It is where there is a proliferation of thinking basically about I and you. Self-view. Self-view. I am like this, you are like that. I have, this belongs to me, this is mine, I want, I need, I don't have. All the proliferation of thinking that goes around this kind of sense of identity, of who we want to become, of who we believe ourselves to be. And of course, this is, you know, this is obviously one of the very important and primary aspects of, of this path and, and of developing insight, is that every moment when we hear those words, I am, it's a place that is really demanding to be questioned. I must be able to ask in that moment, am I? In the moments when we say, you are, are you? To really being aware of the ways in which we, we lock ourselves through thinking into a view of self. You know, and many of our views of self are no more than a certain thought that has been repeated a number of times. And just because a thought has been repeated a number of times doesn't make it true. It just means that it's been repeated a number of times. As often I think what mana papancha is, is the assumption that is true. If I tell myself a million times I'm a schmuck or I'm a failure or I'm inadequate, after a while it looks pretty true, doesn't it? But is it? Or is it simply the view of the moment that is actually born of thought and clinging to thought? So it's really learning to look at how our sense of self and self of other, uh, sense of other is being constructed and formed moment to moment through thinking. And thinking that is clung to and thinking that has a certain, again, truthfulness ascribed to it. Whereas sometimes it's just thinking. I mean, who would we be without our view? How would we define ourselves without a view? So one of the invitations, I think, of this practice is to understand that none of these worlds that we inhabit moment to moment, the world of craving or the world of aversion or the world of of um, opinions or the world of self-view, that none of these worlds arrive ready-made. They don't arrive ready-made. The Buddha encouraged us to nurture a consciousness that rests on no thing, that dwells on no thing. Now, there was a certain, he did have a certain amount also, I must say, to say about Papancha. <laughs> and about the uprooting of Papancha. I mean, one of the aspects, I think, of calming Papancha certainly is, is samadhi. It is certainly learning to calm the mind and to calm the thinking and to really begin to 
just taste the sweetness of a mind that is still, of a mind that doesn't feel so boundaried, just to taste the sweetness of a mind that can really begin to, to rest, to, to cling to nothing. So the, the cultivation of samadhi, the cultivation of concentration, of calmness, this is one of the pieces of calming the papancha. But there is also a need for insight because papancha is really fueled by confusion. I think sometimes it's really helpful to just reflect, you know, because when the, what the Buddha was talking about, when he talks about the mind that is shining, the mind that is radiant, the mind that is luminous and, and without boundaries. I think to really know that mind, samadhi is not enough. There's also the need for insight. It always struck me, you know, when I practiced in Asia, that sometimes I, like, would go for, like, interview groups with, with the teachers, you know, and it was almost predictable that, you know, all the Westerners there, they go often with these kind of long and painful stories, you know, and about all the hard times we were having. And, and then sometimes it would come for, you know, some of the ties to speak. And, and they'd sit there and they'd say, you know, things are rising and passing, you know, and, and uh, you know, things come and go. And they'd sit there, they'd be smiling, you know, and, and so they'd have all these smiling ties on one side of the room and all these really grumpy Westerners on the other side of the room. And I used to think, well, they don't have the same mind as me. They've got a different kind of mind, you know. It's like, like what is this mind, you know? And it's actually they don't <coughs> actually have a different kind of mind at all, but a different understanding of the mind. And one of the ways that the mind is really spoken of in this tradition, of course, is as another of the sense doors, just like the ears, the eyes, the body, the nose, the tongue is the sense door so too is the mind. And the mind has its own area of sensory information, thoughts, images, mental states, emotions. But actually, in terms of understanding the information of the mind, the sensory information of the mind, of course, is part and held within the same rhythms of the sensory information of any other sense door. Sounds arise and pass. They arise from conditions. They fall from into conditions. Thoughts arise and pass. When when a sound arises and passes, you know, when, when you hear a car driving up the driveway, you don't say, I am the car. You know, when, when you walk by the kitchen and you smell the garlic cooking, you don't say, oh, I'm the garlic. But let a thought arise, or an emotion arise, or a mental state arise, and we're actually very often very quick to say, oh, I am the thought. I am sad. I am unhappy. I am agitated. So what is the difference the view of self is not attached to the other sense doors, but it is attached to the sense door of the mind. And maybe, and that is where a lot of the papancha comes from. So this is actually something where the practice or the teaching is applied 
to the mind as it is applied to sounds, to sights, to thoughts, to, I mean, to, to body feelings, to taste. How do we hold all of this as simply a world of phenomena appearing and disappearing? Can we appreciate that, be present with it, without freezing anything into self-view? A part, of, a part of developing insight is not ever to blame the mind, but it's really to understand the way in which ignorance or confusion superimposes itself upon the way things are. And our job in the practice is to wait, take away that covering of ignorance and confusion and to see things as they are. Calming the mind and cooling the view. <laughs> Learning to cool the views. I think this is one of the great arts of this practice, and they work together. As our minds calm, our capacity to cool the views is so much enabled. When our minds are agitated, our views are really fired, heated with that agitation. So the calming of the mind and the cooling of the views, these happen together, they happen simultaneously, both through the formal cultivation of the practice, but also very much through the cultivation of investigation, to really bring in that sense of inquiry and investigation into any area where there is papancha. Anywhere we see a storm of thinking, a repet repetitiveness of thinking, to know papancha is happening and to really look at what is fueling it, what is making it so hot. So to calm the mind and to cool the views. Then that's probably quite all we need to do. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.